Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Well, you might notice by the tone of my voice, I am not Ingrid Cochran. But if you listen to the podcast, you know that I am the co-host, Matthew Portel, the Director of Education and Outreach at Paces Connection. So uh, we, Ingrid, had to step away today, but I hope you're in good hands um, with myself, with uh, our guest this week, which I'm really excited to have a conversation about um, for a variety of reasons. I think uh, this topic is one that is resonating across the globe, not just in the U.S., but definitely here in the U.S., given um, wherever we are with COVID. I was speaking prior to the guest where we don't even know what that is. We don't know. We know it's not post. We don't know where it is. But nonetheless, um, today's guests are bringing a wealth of knowledge and experience around talking about this, the 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 topic of 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 workplace um, burnout and and how do we manage what's happening across uh, the workplaces and across sector, not just in one particular area, but across all sector. And we know there's this idea of the great resignation um, because that has been a topic of many newspapers and TV shows and, uh, and magazines. So we're going to get into that. So I want to do a quick introduction to the guests today, because as I said, they're bringing a wealth of knowledge um, to this topic. And then after I introduce them, I'm, I, I want to drop um, a little bit of information on them. I Uh-oh. think, they, Yeah, I think <laughs> they know more about uh, what I'm going to drop on them than they think they do. But nonetheless, so um, first, I want to introduce Dr. Dobson. She's the director of Healthy of the Healthy Work Campaign. Mm-hmm. as well as an associate director um, of the Center of Social Epi- Epidemiology. She's an adjunct professor at the University of California, as well as many, many other things. And Dr. Uh, Dobson, I'm not going to say all of them. I want you to tell about that. Sure, <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> and then my our other guest is uh, Mark Mark Van Landuit. Yes, very good, very good. How's that? I, I got yeah. a try. He's the outreach director of the Healthy Work Campaign. He's also the co-founder of California Bay Area, the Green New Deal Alliance, Mm -hmm. and a director of the Generation Green, amongst so many other things. So you all welcome to our podcast. And thank you more about you all. Tell us a little bit more about you. Thanks for having us. Well, I I can tell you about the Healthy Work Campaign. Uh, The Healthy Work Campaign is a public health initiative of the Center for Social Epidemiology, which has been doing a lot of groundbreaking research in this field of research. Basically, uh, it's something that we're all talking about now, the fact that workplace conditions affect workers' health, both mental and physical, and how, oh, this is a very technical term, how psychosocial stressors how this is a major uh, factor in long-term illness for workers. And the Center for Social Epidemiology has been way ahead of the curve in in discussing this, particularly on issues of burnout, exhaustion, um, workplace bullying, uh, and how that affects cardiovascular disease, blood pressure, stroke, depression. And uh, the center was formed by uh, Dr. Peter Chenal, our friend who was a real pioneer 
in a study of stress and cardiovascular disease. But we're in this moment now where partly thanks to COVID, these issues have exploded into the national discourse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the fact is that workers have been dealing with these things, with these issues long before the pandemic. Uh, so this is uh, so the the center has been uh, able to to forward a lot of uh, initiatives, a lot of projects that will help workers, and uh, we're being bolstered by you know the U.S. Surgeon General's recent report about mental health and uh, some expansions from NIOSH about talking about mental health. It's just a new era where we're actually openly talking about these things that used to be sort of shameful and people used to blame themselves for. So, mm-hmm. and, and Dr. Dobson, tell us a little bit more about you. And Mark, I have to say, I'm I'm very jealous, and I know you're going to expect me to say this because if you're if you're not expecting it, you should uh, be. You should be hosting this podcast with that voice, <laughs> right? He's got a voice for radio. <laughs> you have, I have the face for radio. You have the voice for radio. Um, I, I I can't wait to listen back and think I've got to try to be more like Mark because you have that perfect voice for a podcast and radio. Oh. Well, Matt, I only sound this way uh, afternoon. Early in the morning, I sound like Jerry Lewis, and so it, it, just, it just deepens with uh, with with time. Perfect. It's, Perfect. it's a hard. It's a really hard voice to follow because you know my voice is all sorts of messed up from multiple different accents. Not at all. Australian, New Zealand, U.S. Now for thirty years, so. So, yeah. Marnie, I actually think that people with uh, with accents from the co- British Commonwealth, I think they get away with murder here in the United States. Everyone, <laughs> everyone's dazzled by <laughs> the, the Anglo, the yeah. supposed Anglo uh, intellectual superiority. <laughs> Which you, well, if you if you've seen supposed, their I say supposed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dr. Dobson, tell us more about you and and how you came into this work and and. Well, you know, I was actually a, um, a sociologist, you know, I, I did my PhD in, um, in sociology in California, and um, I was really interested in public health um, in terms of, you know, and, and in sociology, we're interested in the social aspects of the medical industry, of, of, um, of health and illness, how it's produced by social forces. Um, and so it wasn't much of a step for me to uh, kind of take a step into public health and occupational health and safety, which is kind of like a poor cousin of public health, not to not to put down my <laughs> occupational safety and health community out there who do amazing things advocating for workers every day, all of the time. It's it's a um, you know a much uh, invisible field in some ways, but um, you know there's I think after the pandemic a serious uh, rethinking around occupational health. Um, and I think, you know, um, I've been working with the Center for Social Epidemiology, so it's even a mouthful for me, <laughs> since 2005 with my um, great colleague and friend, Dr. Peter Schnall, um, as Mark mentioned, who's the director, I'm associate director. It's a nonprofit foundation. And, um, you know, Peter was really interested in, um, you know, really walking the talk. So we're researchers and we, you know, we go into our ivory tower and we think up these ideas and um, we do these big epidemiology uh, studies of, of people to see how things like work or, um, you know, other social issues impact health on, in the long term, you know, cohort studies, longitudinal studies and producing this evidence over 30 years um, there's a vast community of other researchers that we um, we work with around the world that um, have contributed to the science of 
you know, social epidemiology, looking at the social causes of illness. Um, and for us, particularly in occupational health or occupational epidemiology, we're really interested in work. And what is it about work that impacts on population health? And that's really um, where I've been working for the last 15 years, um, I guess longer, 17 years now, um, with, but with workers as well, you know, as a sociologist, I really believe that people doing the work understand when their work is stressful, when it's causing, you know, an impact on their health and well-being. They may not completely understand, but um, I've talked to enough folks, firefighters, hotel workers, um, uh, bus drivers, urban transit operators um, that, you know, talk about their work and the particular stresses that they have. And, you know, it's some of it is very stressful work, but there are other things inside the organization of work that make it more stressful than it needs to be, you know, and we're really thinking and seeing that in society right now. Well, and I think what you're saying connects so deeply to what we do at PACES. We are the PACES connection, which is positive and adverse childhood experiences connection, mm. um, because we, all of our work is grounded in that, uh, that, uh, the same very similar science when really when Jane Stevens started Pace's Connection it was getting the ACEs science or the, the study of adverse childhood experiences which was done in the late 90s by Kaiser Permanente and the CDC mm -hmm. um, because they were looking at very similar things that you just mentioned Dr. Dobson they were looking at how does adversity in childhood impact um, negative how negatively the health outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they looked at 10 different areas. They looked at abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction under there. They looked at emotional, sexual, and physical abuse. They looked at um, they looked at incarceration of an adult. They looked at um, the death of a loved one. They looked at all kinds of well, 10 different aspects. And what they found very clearly that there was a dose response between um, how much adversity a child experiences and negative health outcomes later in life. And mm -hmm. so I think about that ACE study and I think about it in the context of what you just said about workplace and how those two things can go together. Because we understand and we know that when our bodies have experienced trauma, right, and we go back into that stress response system, that sometimes depending on environments and all kinds of factors, those feelings and emotions can come out and we may not even know where they're coming from. We're just simply reacting. Our body is reacting based off of experiences that we had before, right? So how do you see what I just said, the ACE study, right? And it was, it was a dose response where um, if you had three or more ACEs, yes, you were- Yes, I remember this now. High had a higher increase of likelihood of all kinds of things, all the way yeah. to if you had six or more, you it was highly correlated that you would have potentially 20 years decrease of life. Life expectancy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I also want to tell you about the other piece, which is the positive childhood experiences, right? Another uh, body of research uh, came out from Dr. Sege and Dr. Bethel, where they looked at how do positive interactions in your childhood play out. And they found that they also have a great impact, right? Um, and so they found that people who have experienced adversity, but they also have experienced those positive experiences, if they look at those 
and they're able to process them, right? That they can actually come out with stronger mental health. And basically what they found is those systems of support are in place, right? They have a caring adult. They feel connected at school. Um, They celebrate traditions. They're able to talk about their feelings. All of those pieces played a role in mitigating the impact of adversity, right? Absolutely. What are your thoughts around ACEs study and the PCE study? You know, I think um, I wasn't familiar with ACEs study, but now I remember, you know, from my sociology background, you know, looking at childhood trauma as life events that have significant impacts, as you said, on long-term health and well-being. And, you know, we know that childhood trauma, um, that um, poverty, childhood poverty, which kind of goes sometimes goes hand in hand, um, as well as other major life events, which can include loss of loved ones, job loss, um, divorce, obviously. These are ongoing major life events that can cause uh, trauma in, in individuals, you know, and on an ongoing basis. Obviously, childhood trauma gets carried through. We know that, as you mentioned, there's a lot of research on that. But I think what's so interesting is that you also uh, mentioned that there are powerful forces at work that can help mitigate the impacts of, of childhood trauma, that having support from, you know, a significant adult in childhood can really help to um, have someone come out from that traumatic experience and become potentially healthier and functioning member of, of society. Um, and I think that goes, that's the same, that's the same truth for people that experience trauma in other areas of your life. Now, I'm not a psychologist, I'm a sociologist, but we have a really big field of research in social support and social relationships. And for example, in the workplace, while people get exposed to adverse working conditions, adverse events at work, if they have support, it buffers the impact of those adverse events, whether it's um, support because of anticipating job loss or support to accomplish tasks that are monumental (laughs) and unreasonable, um, it can mitigate the effect of those stressful events on people's well-being in the long run. So that gives me hope, I think, not only for you know children who have grown up in adverse situations and experienced trauma, that they can, if there are factors also at work, that may help them to become individuals who um, you know, aren't going to go down that route of adverse health conditions, mental health conditions, drug use, and so on. Um, if we can put those supports in place. And I think that's where, why I have hope is that there are things as a society we can do to deal with adverse trauma in childhood, just as there are things that we can do to mitigate the effects of, of unreasonable uh, workplaces or unreasonable demands in workplaces, abusive workplaces, and so on. Well, and interesting enough, too, I didn't add this on purpose, but the yeah. study was done, uh, it was about 17,500 people, and it was predominantly done in a white middle-class demographic, uh, right? So there's been an extended ACE study that looks at community violence, bullying, um, mm-hmm. neighborhood safety, um, environmental issues, right? Whether it's uh, flooding or uh, we talked about uh, New Zealand's impact of the earthquake, right? Yeah. So this is expanded now. And, and so, Mark, what do you see? I mean, what are your thoughts around what, what we just had a conversation around? And how do you see it correlated? Because it directly is, for sure. Um, but how do you see that? 
So where there's marginalized communities, people are growing up in adverse situations. They carry that PTSD into adulthood, into the workplace. And this is something that we expect every individual to, to suck up, to get beyond. And we don't have mm -hmm. these conversations. And one of the things that I think that uh, a child needs just as much as an adult needs is a, is a sense of belonging. And sometimes, correctly or incorrectly, they, they look for that in work. Uh, they should look for it in community. But that sense of tribe, that sense of uh, I'm here with a purpose that's helping, that's I'm here doing work that's bigger than just myself. I think that is that is the work that we must strive to create for all human beings. And we're in a strange moment where in manufacturing, there's an incredible loss of jobs to automation. And amongst the keyboard class, amongst the the uh, the uh, the cubicle class, there's uh, going to be loss of jobs to AI. And we're going to have to be thinking about what the future of work looks like in this society. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, it's connected to how we're going to bring be bringing up the the next generation. And and they're all intertwined. One of the things I've learned in this world that is that every issue is connected to every other issue. <laughs> and and the fact that we are dealing with uh, environmental racism in uh, underprivileged communities, that's a huge impact that has to be mm -hmm. factored in, that has to be dealt with. And the silence is what kills us. So we need to have these discussions. We need to have this dialogue. And people need to be open and forthcoming about, hey, these conditions are killing me. The air that I'm breathing is is unfit for my children the 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 water that i'm drinking is contaminated and why because i live in a community with which is not in the uh, it's not a white suburb even though those those communities are also having these uh situations as well so we need to come together as a country and realize that we're all in this together you can also particularly with the climate crisis coming up uh you can you can maybe buy a bigger house but you can't buy cleaner air Mm -hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. And a lot of what you said can connects to me in a lot of ways. One being that um, just recently I went and had a scan um, done, medical scan. And um, what they were looking for was perfectly healthy, which was great. I was excited about that. And then they said there's a but there's another issue um, secondary that I had severe scarring in my lungs. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was asked, uh, I had called my doctor because he's not the one that read the scan, but he said, it's probably from an environmental toxins. Yeah. And I thought, how interesting. I grew up about 400 yards from a, a refining plant, Shell Oil mm. Company in uh, Southern Illinois. My whole life, I remember massive explosions of oil tankers trickling down onto my house and into our little uh, uh, above the ground pool. And Never had I thought about, although I should have, the impact, right, of that mm -hmm. environmental experience. We've joked about it in our family, but it made it real at that point of, wow, this really could have had an impact, right? Mm -hmm. And when we talk about impact, there's so much that's happening um, with the workforce now, right? There's this, this sincere and utter great resignation that's happening, but there's, there's words like burnout and compassion fatigue and all of these words happening. What are your thoughts around 
um, these conversations that are happening and, and how do you, and what role do you see what you guys are doing, especially with providing a tool to companies, organizations, um, to gauge how their staff and employees are doing? Well, burnout is America's work epidemic right now, and has been for a, for a long time. And it's amazing. Everybody talks about burnout, and, and everybody knows what burnout is. So if you say burnout, there's the, the glimmer of recognition in the eyes mm -hmm. of people. They know. But uh, the question is, why is burnout happening? And, and the discussion right now, leading into what we just were talking about, you know, burnout has been, uh, this is the conversation amongst the professional class, the managerial class. They're able to talk about this, but regular workers are experiencing this as well. And they're not mm -hmm. on TikTok or on Twitter or on Facebook talking about it, but uh, they're, the, they're the people that we, the invisible workers that keep the society going. Um, and and uh, Dr. Marnie, I would ask you, what is the different, what is burnout and mm -hmm. how is it different from exhaustion? Well, you know, burnout is um, something that is in in the popular discourse. I mean, as Mark said, you, everyone kind of thinks they understand what it is, but it is an academic term that was developed from talking with people who were experiencing these these things. But it's also it's not just a, a exhaustion, you know, where you go to sleep at night, you wake up in the morning, you're refreshed. It is a very deep level of exhaustion where every day is difficult. It's hard to get up. It's hard to function. You feel a very fundamental, elemental level of exhaustion um, that isn't easily remedied. Um, but along with that, it also includes this concept of depersonalization or cynicism, which mm -hmm. can be related to this idea of moral injury when people feel disillusioned by the system that they're working in um, and uh, become cynical about either the people they work for or the system uh, where they're helping people um, is, is not working for their clients. You know, there's, and there's also a distancing that often goes on when people are burnt out from the people they serve um, because they feel, you know, in some ways they're, they're not able to help anymore. And then the third element is the sense of professional, um, a lack of professional accomplishment or efficacy is the academic word is basically I can't do my job the way I really want to do it. I feel like I'm not doing a good job anymore. And the combination of that, you know, is really damaging to, um, to workers, you know, in terms of their, um, their lives, their sense of meaning, their commitment to the job. Um, and for organizations, obviously, you know, burnout is going to affect um, productivity um, in terms of, you know, how many, clients they can serve, how they're being served. Um, but burnout is also, you know, I think common in other industries that aren't in human service, maybe not to the same extent as in human service work. Usually care workers, folks that are in that, those fields uh, tend to have more burnout. Physicians right now, surprisingly, have epidemic levels of burnout. Of course, partly related to COVID, but this was occurring way before the pandemic as well because the nature of the work has been changing for physicians who used to be high up on the, you know, in, in terms of occupational uh, job characteristics like control, having some authority or autonomy over their work. But as they're becoming employees and salaried, and there's systems in place where insurance are making decisions about what they can or can't, you know, uh, do for their patients, and they're required to uh, do all this electronic um, data entry, 
which kind of reduces their ability to do all this work and uh, to have some freedom and decision-making on their jobs. So they're seeing much higher rates of burnout. And we're seeing that millions and, you know, potentially, you know, um, millions or at least thousands of physicians that are leaving the field or intend to leave the field. Same with nurses. We've seen that. Uh, and partly because of the pandemic, the, the burnout rates have gone through the roof because of massive workload, because of the kind of, uh, you know, shifts that they've had to do and people have left the, the job, so they've had to pick up the slack, those that are left. Um, so, you know, it's, it's no wonder that burnout is definitely a major um, issue there um, for physicians. But across the board, you know, we've seen folks resigning from all kinds of fields, um, hospitality, you know, right now that we've had a lot of folks leave, there's staffing shortages, folks are finding it hard to fill staffing positions um, in the hospitality industry. And part of that, I think, is, you know, um, it's a hard job working. I've, I was a waitress for many, many years, and you get a lot of uh, flack from customers. They can treat people incredibly abusively, you know, and um, that takes its toll because that is a stressful experience dealing with hostile customers, angry, yelling, you know, complaining. Um, and, and unfortunately, during the pandemic, we had people coming in and assaulting folks who were asking them to wear a mask as required by, you know, public health law. So we, um, yeah, we definitely have seen burnout across the across different sectors. For, for those of you um, who are listening, my head was shaking so bad, I think I have a neck. <laughs> <laughs> Everything that you said. Dr. Dobson re resonated with me. I waited tables for eight years while I was transitioning from wherever I was in my life, to be quite honest. It really wasn't yeah. college, but at that time I was um, trying to, to sort a lot of my own experiences out. Um, and I'll never forget that one time, I, uh, gentlemen, I've never spoken about this like publicly like this, but I think it needs to be heard. Um, he, he asked for fresh squeezed lime for his cocktail so I brought him a nice piece of lime on a plate and he looked me right in the eyes and he said, is there something wrong with your fingers? Because I said, I wanted a fresh. Ugh. Um, oh, man. And those are the things. And, you know, you talked about corporate America, you talked about the medical field, you talk, but those are things that are happening to people that are, I was making $2 and 13 cents an hour in the state of Tennessee. You don't make minimum wage. You make, $2.13 and it's all based on tips. And so just listening to, I mean, hearing that and knowing I have no voice no. in that moment. I could, right. Um, but knowing that, that my livelihood at that point, and I think what you were talking about, about what we were seeing in COVID wasn't, it's been an extreme, right. But yes. these even microaggressions. And by the way, I'm a white male. I understood mm -hmm. that some of my colleagues of color experienced it worse, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and so I, I think this has been, this is an issue that we're not just talking about professionals. And when you're talking about the work you all do, we're also talking about living wages. We're yes. talking about yeah. discrimination in the workplace. We're talking yes. about bullying in the workplace. And for those people who listen, know I was in public ed for 15 years. And I remember as an admin, my whole, my whole mantra was, it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to not have support. 
and mm-hmm. building in supports. People said, how do you get teachers to stay? You treat them like humans. You treat them how you want to be treated. You provide time and space for processing. We had a, we had a system called the tap in and tap out system. When mm-hmm. something happened and there was an adult that for whatever reason had an escalation, whether it was a child, whether it was life, they could tap out for that moment, step out with another adult if they choose, or just simply step out on their own, right? Mm-hmm. To take a minute. Yeah. But we know that in so many spaces and places, we have people who are in positions and roles, whether it's corporate America, whether you are a, a, a frontline worker that can't step out. No. Because they don't have that privilege that so many of us have where we can take a day off sick. Exactly. Right. No. And that's, I think, the difficult thing, you know, for for so many people in these jobs where they're not only exposed to public, you know, hostility from the public, they are also exposed to some of the worst kinds of job stressors, irregular scheduling, not being able to organize their lives and take care of children. And, you know, that has a great deal of harm on on workers um, in those sectors. You all, we have talked about so much in a 30 minute time frame um, <laughs> and we have, we have not even scratched the surface. So we're mm-hmm. going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to talk about this idea of silent quitting. We're going to talk about vacations and how we look at those here, especially in the U S and then we're going to get into the work um, of the healthy work uh, campaign and what's happening with the resources that they have. So we will be back in just a moment. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests, or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. Well, not quite Ingrid Cochran, but um, I do aspire one day to um, have her amazing knowledge that she uh, brings to this podcast every week. So before the break, uh, we were really talking about um, the great resignation and what it really means, um, the idea of burnout and where it came from, why we are experiencing it in such high rates. Um, and as we come back to the from the break, um, we really want to get into other aspects of, of what is happening um, across the U.S. and even, to be quite honest, across some parts of the globe, not every part of the globe by any means, right? There are a lot of systems and structures that are in place in other places that do support healthy and uh, well-being in the workplace. But I happened to be flipping through the channels, I don't know, it's been about a month ago, and I saw... Um, I'm not going to tell what show. I'm embarrassed that I even stopped to watch it. But there was this idea of quiet quitting. Um, and I, I would love to hear from you all just what you see or define what quiet quitting is and how do you see it playing out uh, in the workplace, right? And then I'll maybe share my opinion on quiet quitting because <laughs> uh, I have a lot of thoughts around it. Mark, what's your thoughts? Well, I was watching all these conferences from Davos because I have no life, where essentially all these oligarchs and rich people uh, talk about uh, how much profits they're not making post-COVID. And what was amazing is all these heads of industry are really upset by the notion of quiet quitting and this notion that that workers are phoning it in. And and they were desperate for uh, solutions about how they can envelop how, how they can have for their workers, their jobs take over the life of their workers. And they will, the things that they don't address is that workers are feeling undervalued because of short staffing of all these lay, layoffs, of extra hours, uh, work overload, uh, the fear of performance review. And again, the term is somewhat new, but what it's describing is certainly not new. And workers are overstretched. Wages have been stagnant. We were talking about living wages. The federal minimum wage has not risen in over a decade. Mm -hmm. Workers deserve a raise. And what we're seeing is with more and more engagement expected from workers at the workplace, more loyalty expected when there's no loyalty shown in return, there's this incredible tension that is created. Also, uh, Dr. Marnie can speak on this, the psychological effect of knowing that there's going to be layoffs and you see one by one your coworkers leaving. I mean, think of the tension that leaves, you know, mm -hmm. knowing that you're going to be next. Maybe you'll be next. Maybe you won't be next. And younger workers have an understanding that corporations have no loyalty to workers. So it's no surprising that these younger workers don't have loyalty to corporations. But anyway, uh, from a more scientific uh, perspective, Dr. Marnie will... Oh, well, I don't know if there's much science yet around quiet quitting. I wish there was. It's a fascinating term, and I think it does reflect something that is real. You know, I think that's, on the other hand, everyone's saying, oh, that's just fake. It's made up by the media. But 
you know, I think I think Mark's right. There definitely is a tension um, in many uh, industries and, and organizations where people feel like they've gone above and beyond. They've pushed, they've done the extra shifts and they haven't received the rewards, the acknowledgement, you know, maybe the promotion. And they're like, why do I put in all this extra effort, you know, if it's not going to be rewarded? And at the worst, you know, people may have gone above and beyond and then they lose their jobs or the person next to them loses their job is laid off and they have to do two jobs now, you know, for the price of one. So um, there is a lot of undervaluing of, of people. I have to say, though, there are a lot of workers out there who can't quiet quit, you know, and I see quiet quit as a form of resistance. Honestly, I think it's a way of putting up boundaries and saying enough, you know, they, maybe because people are burned out, maybe because the pandemic slowed them down enough in life to realize what was important. You know, they needed more balance. But, you know, unfortunately, in a lot of uh, sectors, you know, folks who drive vehicles for a living, folks who care for elderly, care for children, um, it's, it's hard for them to step away, you know, as we were talking about um, before. Um, hospital workers, you know, there's, there's not a lot of places where they can go and quiet quit. You know, if you're on your computer and you're just doing your bare minimum and you close it down at the end of the day, you know, on a 12-hour shift for a nurse with over too many patients, they can't quite quit because it's patient safety issues. So I think we need to think about that because it's also somewhat of a privilege to be able to quietly quit and have boundaries. Um, and for a lot of workers, they don't have that option. And, and I think it, it can lead to greater and greater burnout and people may just end up leaving and quitting as we're seeing in the public sector, a lot of folks leaving from healthcare, from the public sector, from teaching. Education uh, is struggling right now with um, teachers leaving in droves after the pandemic um, from the experiences they had, uh, which were problematic in so many levels in terms of their, their health and well-being. They just, um, if they could retire, they did. Um, and if they could find better jobs, they did. Well, and I and think other things about uh, about this new culture is that it advances with technology. So every advancement in technology with the iPhone, with more access to the worker, you know, the businesses, they see these technologies and they say outright, you know, the era of nine to five work is over. And mm -hmm. so workers have been increasingly pushed to the brink. You know, workers are more connected to their work now more than ever from frontline essential workers to tech workers through our phones, mm -hmm. through our emails and every aspect of our personal life is now intermixed with our working life and that's why it's important for people to be able to check out every worker yeah. should be able to do that uh workers need to have a life outside of their work yeah and i think right now workers are taking back their power i think it's no coincidence that we're seeing a resurgence in the labor movement uh right with of course that happens with uh tight uh labor markets but i I'm curious to see if this wave of labor activism survives what could possibly be a forthcoming recession. Be interesting to see. And I think you're right is we having been in education for so long, listening to the voices, some of our youth, mm -hmm. they're figuring it out. They're figuring out that we don't have to do that. Right. And people talk about, Oh, it's the millennials or it's this generation, or they're just, they're just jumping from one thing to another they're looking for the value, right? And yeah. now they're looking out for themselves first and their well-being and, and making sure that they have and, and this idea of work-life balance. 
it doesn't exist because it's just life. It's all part of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And we try to departmentalize it, but you can't, I couldn't, when I, when I had an experience at school as a principal and I had some truly traumatic experiences, I couldn't just drop that when I got at home. Right. right? Mm -hmm. I had to consciously try to process a lot and it happened sometimes every day. Right. We have the, the youth's voice are now beginning to rise up and say, we're not going to do that. We're not going to take this. And I do think it is a resurgence of self-advocacy that my generation didn't have, that my for mm-hmm. sure my parents' generation didn't have. And so it gives me hope. And I also think to uh, Dr. Marnie, when I hear this the quiet quitting, it did resonate in my in my mind of educators. If educators mm-hmm. literally only worked the hours they were paid, it would collapse. <laughs> but here's the thing is, it, is the, the system is designed and knows that. Yes. So teachers, because they have lives in, at stake in front of them, mm-hmm. most are not going to be, they're not going to do that because their conscious is driving the work, not yeah. the money, right? Yeah. That's the sad part is it yeah. is. Their care is being exploited. You know, they care, they want to make, and this happens in the public sector for public health workers and child protective service workers and aging and elderly care workers, you know, they care and the system exploits that. And that has to change because everybody deserves recovery time to take time for their children and see them grow up, you know, and, and actually have recovery so that they don't end up ill or burned out. You know, and I think that's that's the trick is how do we how do we do that across all of these different industries? Well, and this this is the history, culture, trauma podcast. So if we think about the historical context of labor, driving labor, and even when we go back to the 1600s and 1619, when we brought slave labor into this country, Mm -hmm. it has always been a factor of we have to get people to do more for nothing or less. Right. Yes. And I yes. think that that ideal hasn't changed. It's just manifested and looked a bit differently. But the core value has continued to stay the same. Yes. Yeah. There's a legacy there. You think about um, after slavery, uh, what work did um, women of color end up doing? You know, domestic work, caretaking work you know, um, cleaning work, you know, and, and historically it still continues that um, African-American people and Latino people are in these sectors and their work is devalued, their work is exploited. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's something about that historical legacy of racism that these are black and brown jobs and so they are inherently devalued, you know, and I think that is... Um, something that needs to be un- unpacked and uncovered and, and resisted. You know, we have to start valuing this these work, these this work, and these workers, because teaching our children, taking care of our elderly, all of this um, important uh, work that we have to do to reproduce the labor force, basically, right? Reproductive labor is massively undervalued, also because of gender. You know, so it's the it's the conjunction of gender and race that creates this undervaluing of these jobs because women intrinsically are supposed to care, and so we take advantage of that. And like you said, with teachers, you know, they're because they're going to push on past it because they care about their students, 
whether you're a male teacher or a female teacher, it just goes along with that job. Um, but undoing that and understanding that everybody needs to be valued, especially in this, these work, in these work situations, you know, is part of the struggle. And, you know, we are seeing, look, who's unionizing? Teachers, nurses, you know, uh, domestic workers, you know, the Domestic Workers Alliance has been really, really phenomenal at putting forward for, um, for people in these non-standard industries who, where they're paid privately and they don't, they're not even employees, you know. So let's talk about because um, what the Healthy Work Campaign is doing, um, because I think there's tools that are there that um, can be provided to individuals as well as employers to start gauging because perception is reality, right? And I, I love that there is such a misinterpretation uh, in so many schools by so many administrators that the teachers are fine, right? Mm. And I, I think one of the most powerful things that we did in the school district that I worked is we asked. Yeah. We asked how they were doing. We asked what they needed. We asked what was work, wasn't working so we could make changes to support in the best way in a broken system that we could, right? Right, right. Um, but talk about these tools that you all provide um, and how to get access and all of that. Well, you know, we... Um we're researchers, most of us by, by um, background. And we, you know, so we know a lot about measuring these ideas and these notions of work stress. And it's been, you know, 30 years or more that many of these ideas have been measured and looked at in terms of their impact on health. So we decided to create um, a survey tool, which was online and accessible to everybody. And, and part of it was, you know, we wanted to, um, not leave it up to research to, um, you know, bring these ideas, um, you know, forward for organizations and for workers because it takes so long and it's so expensive <laughs> and the funding is getting worse and worse. And we're like, hey, you know, this, these tools could be really valuable to organizations um, to begin to understand and set these um, priorities themselves because it also can be really overwhelming. So what we believe is that it, there are many organizations out there that do care about the health and well-being um, of their workers and that if they um, have the tools to equip themselves with, they can identify what the issues are. Because, as you said, many, many don't actually talk to their employees, their staff members and ask them what is going on and assume that it's just the employee, that stress is inside the employee. And they don't look at the sources of stress that could be contributing to that. And so we do have a lot of great wellness programs and, you know, meditate, go to meditate, go walk, exercise. Of course, those things are important. But there's no point doing those things unless you're going to, if you're going to walk back into the same environment and get hit over the head with the same factors that are causing the stress in the first place. So we really want um, organizations to know what some of those sources of stress are for workers um, so that you can begin to address them. And for workers to know that there are sources of stress, that it's not just in their head, that yeah, it's, it's in their bodies and that it's, it's going to, it can affect them. They kind of, you kind of know when you're in a stressful job, you feel it in your body. You have, you know, racing heartbeats, you get anxiety. You may not want to get up out of bed in the morning. You get headaches, sleep disturbances, the classic signs. But in the long run, these can turn into way more serious issues. And so also on a population level, we want to say, hey, 
let's try to find ways to mitigate this at the workplace because where do we spend most of our hours in 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 our lives you know at work so we need to find ways to reduce those kinds of stresses that we can from uh, at, at the workplace and so much medical research that is done around these issues are put into papers that get filed away, get maybe printed in a journal and a handful of people read it. But uh, the Healthy Work Campaign created this incredible tool called the Healthy Work Survey, which is a potential game changer, a potentially a revolutionary tool for businesses and labor and individual workers to be able to use. It's completely scientific. And most importantly, it's completely free for Mm -hmm. organizations and individuals to use. And this is really remarkable. There's, you know, there there is an industry that has been built around uh, worker wellness, and so a lot of these things have been, you know, uh, squirreled away behind uh, contracts and things like that. But this is available for everybody, for any organization that senses that they're having a problem with their workers, and when workers know that they have a problem, they can take these and actually have data actually have a a diagnosis to be able to say, this is what's happening in the workplace. These are the conditions that are making me sick. Yeah. And and it's online. So we wanted to make make sure that folks could, you know, uh, do it easily. So anyone can go to the website at um, healthywork.org and take the survey. You can, it's anonymous. So one of the important things about, um, about a survey for employees, because we, we don't live in a world where, we can uh, ex- you know, talk about our knowledge and talk about our problems without potential retaliation. And that's yes. something that we believe is important to, in a healthy workplace is you know, um, no retaliation, um, that people who are whistleblowers need to be able to talk about problems and safely. But survey, the survey tool is one way of doing that and it can kind of raise the red flags for areas that need addressing so that organizations can set priorities. Okay, how do we go about dealing with this? We, we measure issues uh, related to workload, um, social support, work-life conflict, um, safety climate, uh, and also justice issues at the workplace. So we measure workplace bullying, um, sexual harassment, uh, feelings of discrimination. And these are questions that are part of a national um, survey called the NIOSH Quality of Work-Life Survey, which is a population survey every four years. But the cool thing is, is that we utilize the questions from this in our survey so that we could compare it to the U.S. population. So individuals and organizations can get these automated reports that we provide for free. And it tells you, is your organization's average higher at risk than the U.S. population or you're about intermediate or you're at low risk. So it helps organizations kind of, uh, you know, put their fingers on where the issues are. And the survey sort of creates a benchmark for their own progress, which is very important. And it's an incredible tool for a new way to be thinking about our healthcare system. In this country, we don't have a system that is modeled for prevention. Yeah. Because of all the, the all the profit incentives are on the side of treatment, and uh, in the case of health in, insurance companies, on preventing treatment. So this is this is this is an incredible new step. The, the fact that it's available for everybody is really important. And um, I think I've said this on here. I, I identify as an unapologetic disruptor, and um, <laughs> I, I see this as um, a, a form of of a bit of disruption of. Um, we are, 
it's time that things change, right? And this is one form. Yeah, employers have to know, yeah. and 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 workers have to know it's not them, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, I've even heard in the field of education, uh, in reference to teachers, that they're grown, they have degrees, they need to figure it out, right? And that puts the ownership on the individual while not looking at the system. And yeah. I will tell you, examining the system is very overwhelming, right? Yeah, because be. even even if a school decides they want to do something, and I was one of those schools that did, you're still operating under the constructs of a of a system that, by design, is driving people to burnout and compassion fatigue, and so. This is a this is part I see this part of a of a greater body of work of mm-hmm. okay now we're developing this now we have the evidence which you, we already know this has been around for 40 years of research mm-hmm. yeah that it's there but this is going to give people I hope a platform to advocate for themselves and others to say this we've got to have it it's got to be done differently yes. yeah absolutely and I think um being done differently is, you know, can take, uh, it can start with small steps. It can start with more, you know, radical change where you have folks organizing, you know, um, because of poor working conditions. Oftentimes, you know, we have the Starbucks workers, we have the Amazon workers who are obviously um, activated because of massive injury rates in Amazon, which OSHA just recently um, was able to, um, you know, throw the book at Amazon about, um, although it ended up being a slap on the hand. <laughs> That's a whole other story. <laughs> um, but, you know, there, there's there's things that can be done. And I think one of the important points we do is that the survey is just the first step because it just it can raise awareness among workers. They start talking to each other. Hey, workers can come up with ideas in this process. They know their jobs the best. They know the system. And if we just turn this information back to employees and staff and say, what do you think would help? You know, if, if organizations listened to the, their workers and, listen, you know, heard the voices of their workers, I think there would be a lot more solutions that come up from below than are handed down from above, you know, in terms of their effectiveness. It's much more effective to involve employees in coming up with ideas for solutions than it is just to hand it down. And I would be amiss if I didn't say, this is supports we provide at Paces Connection. Yeah. Um, we sub- we provide these to organizations, to government agencies of how do we then take information and make actionable um, strategy around listening to voice, um, making sure all the voices are at the table, making yeah. sure we have a plan to give context, right? And to build spaces and places where people want to be. Um, whether that's a community, whether that's a workplace, right? It's part of who we are at Paces Connection and 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 our community organizing that we help organizations do. You all, I can't thank you enough for all that you have shared. Um, it has been, I will say, I'm I'm confident we're going to have you back um, <laughs> because we didn't even scratch the surface to so many other aspects of conversations that we could have had, and I. I hope next time Ingrid can be on here um, because I know for sure she would want to relate this to historical context because mm-hmm. this isn't a new problem. It's been yeah. around since uh, the beginning of our country's on. inception. Yes, absolutely. Matt, I just want to say one of the things I've learned about human beings 
is that everybody wants to be heard and everybody wants to be understood. And from that, you can build anything. And we're very proud of the movement that Paces Connection has helped create. And we're proud mm -hmm. to be here with you. Well, thank you. And thank you all for listening. We will be back again next week. Um, and uh, we will definitely have both of you back on as we just, we barely even scratched what we could have talked. So thank you. And thank we'll you, uh, see you all next week. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.